BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, this is Molly Solomon. And I'm Aaron Baldessari. We're so excited we got to see some of you in person recently. We had our first live event at KQED's brand new headquarters in San Francisco. We've been busy working on our next season of Sold Out. Stay tuned. But before that drops, we wanted to invite you all to a conversation we had on evictions, the pandemic, and some possible solutions. We spoke with Anne D'Amico Amora. She's the executive director of the Eviction Defense Center, where she works with tenants throughout Alameda County in the city of Richmond, which is an area across the bay from San Francisco. We also spoke with Christical Branson, who lobbies on behalf of small property owners as executive director of the Berkeley Rental Housing Coalition, and Tim Thomas, the research director for the Urban Displacement Project at UC Berkeley. A huge shout out to all of our listeners who came out, asked super smart questions, and shared your stories. Thank you. And for everyone who couldn't join us, we hope to see you next time. In the meantime, here's a recording of that conversation. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. When the pandemic hit, we, Molly and I, immediately started thinking about renters. I think it was really clear to us that... You know, if we were all being told to stay at home, then people weren't going to be able to work and it was going to be really difficult to pay rent. And we saw right away that, you know, there was a lot of action at pretty much all levels of government. We had grassroots organizing by tenant groups that were calling for rent strikes. We saw city and county governments uh, implement their own eviction moratoriums. And we even saw the federal government put in place some renter protections and uh, uh, mortgage forbearance as part of the CARES Act. And I think all of this also just really underscored the idea 
um, you know, the link between housing and public health. You know, we were at a moment where we were all being told to, to stay at home, to stay safe, to shelter in place. Um, that can be very difficult when home is unstable or you don't have a home. Um, we also, I think, just in our reporting, you know, we heard a lot of anxiety, a lot of concern, not just from renters who at that point maybe had lost work and lost income, were thinking about, you know, April 1st was coming around, how are they going to pay the rent? Um, but we were hearing this from landlords, too, who felt like they were being left holding the bag and how are we going to pay for all of this unpaid rent yeah, so pretty early on, we started to gather data. Uh, we requested sheriff lockout data from all nine Bay Area counties. These are instances when sheriff deputies are actually show up to someone's house to enforce an eviction order from a judge. And we partnered with Tim's team at UC Berkeley to help us analyze that data. And what we learned by looking at it, um, you know, we really wanted to see who was being protected and who was falling through the cracks. Um, and what we learned was that some of the people falling through the cracks were the most vulnerable members of our society. They were people with disabilities, non-English speakers, folks who lived uh, you know, often in the most economically disadvantaged neighborhoods in the Bay Area. And you know, it made us really want to dig into that for this next season of Sold Out. Um, you know, to, to take a step back and really investigate and interrogate the system of evictions. And, you know, when you think about before the pandemic, before all of this, um, you know, the, the, the data shows that over 3.5 million people were getting evicted every single year. And we know that it probably is going to be getting worse after the pandemic and more people are going to be vulnerable. Um, so I think, you know, for us, we wanted to, to take a step back, look at that and think about what that means. Yeah. And I think we also saw it as an opportunity. You know, it was a chance to think about solutions, to take stock of what's transpired over the past two years and think about how we can do things differently. Um, so I think with that, uh, we'll get right into it. Into it. <laughs> um, Anne and Krista, I, I wanted to start with you both. Um, you know, <clears throat> Anne, you're a, a tenant attorney, you run the Eviction Defense Center. Krista, you represent a lot of small landlords in, in Berkeley. And I think you've often, you know, maybe before the pandemic, found yourself on opposing teams. <laughs> Always. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the pandemic hit, and you were both sort of in the situation where you were kind of, you know, both advocating for some help, calling on your elected leaders to uh, bring down some rent relief to both help the renters that you were presenting and, and the landlords that were uh, dealing with a lot of missed rent, unpaid rent. Um, so I, I want to start there. You know, you're both also focused on, on Berkeley. They were one of the first people to approve, you know, probably one of the earliest, certainly in the Bay Area, maybe even in the country, to have a rent relief program up and running. Um, what worked well and, and what didn't? And we'll start with you. Um, definitely what worked well, I would say the city of Berkeley, within two weeks of the shutdown, they were having meetings, city staff, um, to build a rent relief program. They were so proactive. It was really, really impressive. And I think it's because uh, Mayor Adeguin, the city council and city staff there, led by Dr. Warhus, are very, very committed to anti-displacement work. And Berkeley, you would agree, is on the forefront of of already having an existing program of rent relief. So what they did was immediately beef it up. And it was impressive that um, the shutdown was in March. And then I think by May 1st, the program was up and running and uh, money was already flowing into the community. So I think 
that was really amazing that they were so proactive. Um, there's already been literally millions of dollars have flowed into the city of Berkeley. So being so proactive, building the system early was fantastic. Krista and I would always be at meetings and see each other and be speaking on opposite ends of things. Um, one thing that has not worked, I think, across the board for rental assistance is that the most vulnerable people do not have access to the system. It's largely online. You have to be able to upload documents. You have to have access to technology. And the frustrating part for me was, you know, a year and a half in, was still having people come to our door at the Eviction Defense Center, seniors, um, people with disabilities, who had never even heard of rental assistance, and just, like, were so far behind in rent and panicked, um, talking to people who had already moved out onto the street because they were so terrified of what would happen, and they would 100% qualify. So I started thinking, how do we reach a very vulnerable population because I don't think that's working at the state level, at the county level, at the city level. And so I actually reached out to Krista because she would always be advocating on behalf of small landlords and a lot of very vulnerable um, tenants live in those kind of wonky small landlord properties. And so we started partnering to reach out directly to some of her clients' um, tenants to try to, to help them apply. And they were so appreciative because most of them didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. So, Anne, you reached out to Krista, and, and how did that make the system work better for both of you? I don't know, Krista, if you want to jump in, too. <laughs> yes, I think the way that it helped both our clients, so Anne's clients, um, the tenants and mine of the property owners, was we were able to more quickly access and provide the relief. Because there's when this came forth, there was a lot of you know, concern by both the rental housing provider and tenants. Um, the government's asking for information. The government's providing the assistance. There, there was definitely some apprehension. And I think a lot of what Anne and I have worked together on in the past year and a half has been overcoming that apprehension and being able to assure both the tenant and the rental housing provider that this is assistance to keep people housed, period. And that is what has worked. But we both have examples of people who don't have access, either the the tenant or the rental housing provider, to people like Anne and myself, and they are still waiting for that rental assistance as of today. And that's what's not working for the program. Mm -hmm. Was it weird for you to to find yourself on the same team all of a sudden? (laughs) I don't think that weird. I mean, I reached out to Krista and she like we she immediately was like, "Yeah, I know who you are." <laughs> you know, I will um, admit I listened to the voicemail twice because I was like, <laughs> you know, not my usual call. This is a trap. Uh, <laughs> right. Am I being recorded? Um, but I was. I mean, I returned that phone call within five minutes because I knew from seeing Anne in the community that, you know, even though we sort of lobby on different sides of the table, at the end of the day, we were all brought together by this pandemic and the emergency nature and the fact that people are at risk for losing housing. And specific to Anne's point, and, and what I'm sure Tim will be weighing in on too, is that at-risk population on both sides, um, but primarily on the tenant side, is the marginalized members of our community. And that was important to be able to keep people housed. Mm. I want to pick up something that you said, Krista, about, you know, money is still not going out the door as quickly as you would like it to. Um, Tim, I know that you are looking at, you know, and this is true in California, but it's also true nationally. You know, there's been a lot of national reporting looking at this. Um, 
you know, uh, meanwhile, the CDC uh, eviction moratorium lifted in August. So, Tim, what are you seeing sort of nationally now that we have a few months of, of this sort of national data uh, in terms of, you know, where evictions are, are creeping up or if they are? Are we seeing this wave that everyone was predicting? Uh, we didn't see the wave right away, but I'm very concerned right now. Actually, a colleague of mine uh, at Portland State University sent me an article saying that Oregon is stopping all rental relief because they've run through it. Mm -hmm. Texas and New York have also stopped. And we're also coming across a season where there's, in the past, historically, Christmas, for some reason, is one of the highest peaks in evictions. It's one of the more wicked things I've ever seen in terms of you know, research and just looking at the data. And it's like, why is this? This is you know, very tragic. Uh, so far, nationally, from, you know, data is very hard to get. Uh, there's, you know, kind of to set the record, there are three types of eviction data. There's the notice, there's the filing, and there's the sheriff writ of restitution or the execution, the lockout, the, what, we, what we looked at. And people leave across any of those three periods. And what's really interesting is that filing rates uh, for the few counties that data is available They've been around 60, 50 to 60 percent of historical averages prior to uh, now. But there are some states that have 167 percent of historical average, like I think it's Arkansas right now. Um, and, but what's been coming up a lot is there's been a lot of, you know, what was mentioned before was not a lot of people knew about rental relief, right? The ERA program, the Eviction Rental Assistance Program that you know the Biden administration tried to put out immediately, not a lot of cities have uh, been able to hand that out. When I looked at ERA-1 distributions from January to July, only about 16% of the allocated distributions went out. Uh, some cities are doing well. We, we calculate, like for example, Las Vegas was hit really hard uh, through the pandemic. But they've been able to, to roll out about 77% of their ERA distributions. But then we're hearing stories about Oregon and Texas and New York that have run through their distributions as well. Um, so I, I think that uh, one of the things that's concerning is the holiday season's coming. There have been a lot of stories about uh, threats by landlords to evict and those that don't know about the protections that they have. They're actually leaving prior to the notice. So that's untrackable. So that 50 to 60% of historical average could actually be higher because people are leaving prior to the, the, the filing process. Tim, what do we know about who's most at risk of being evicted? And where are those evictions most likely to happen? So I've been studying evictions uh, since 2013, and I've studied multiple cities, and I almost don't need data to kind of predict where they're at because the same thing happens. We find them happening in the most affordable areas, the cheapest rent in a city. They happen in the most uh, marginalized communities, the lowest income. But the number one predictor that we've been able to find is the proportion black. And that's largely related to the relationship or the issue or what I call the sins of the United States that started post-slavery, where in 1930s, FHA, 
Fair Housing Act enacted the FHA loan, it had a racial component to it, preventing particularly black households, Chinese, all other groups, to participate in the grand growth of the middle class. And then you pass through segregation, forcing households into urban spaces, uh, concentrated poverty, health issues, environmental issues. And then by 1980, 1990, we have like the last period of strong segregation that we think of when we hear the term segregation. And that's when gentrification started to happen. But what happened was whites were able to get loans, whereas uh, black and indigenous and persons of color were not able to get loans in their own neighborhood to help revitalize that. So that started the great shift of urban spaces flipping. So what happens to the BIPOC community is that they start to get displaced somewhere else. And what's tragic to me is that the majority of evictions happen where BIPOC displacement destinations are happening. I just wanted to add to that that my office um, practices primarily in Alameda County, which has a moratorium, so no evictions can go forward. We have our own moratorium. But we practice in one city outside of Alameda County in the city of Richmond, so evictions can go forward because the state moratorium lifted. And the statistics have just been horrifying. It Like there were three months in a row where 99% of the clients calling us, tenants calling us, were people of color. So we're talking predominantly African-American and Latinx in Richmond being displaced. And a lot of single moms, um, seniors, this was the population that was most affected when the moratoriums lifted. And it's just, it's the, the, the numbers are really terrible. Yeah. Um. You know, uh, for the season two, we'll be focusing our first episode on a city in the Bay Area, and I don't know if we should give it away yet, but um, <laughs> in an area that has seen a lot of out-migration from the urban core of the Bay Area, and I've seen a lot of, you know, people moving into it where uh, they were displaced from, you know, high-cost areas in San Francisco and Oakland and have moved uh, there in search of um, more affordable rents. Um, and so it's interesting that you see that sort of nationally, Tim. Can um, I add one layer, an, yeah. an additional layer to that from, from the other side, so to speak? We know in the same city, Richmond, and other, other cities in which there are large BIPOC communities, we know from stories that there are owners, small rental housing providers, that also acquired their properties when they were being redlined. They could not get conventional loans from the banks. And they created lending communities within their own community. They would allow a neighbor to buy the duplex and pay over a period of time with a very low down payment. And those owners are really few and far between these days. And some of them are really hanging on by a thread due to the eviction moratorium. And so my concern and, and the population that I'm speaking about today and the work I do is protection of those owners as well so that they don't leave the community, sell to a larger investor, and then those uh, pe people of color who are the tenants lose their affordable housing. Because we do know, all three of us working in this business, that many times an owner of color or a small owner will rent at a more affordable rate to a tenant in those communities. So I wanted to add that additional piece to it. Yeah. I think we've seen this backed up nationally by some of the studies on 
um, housing providers who uh, have participated in rent relief, um, showing that you know um, housing providers who are themselves people of color tend to rent out to you know people of color uh, who were then most impacted by the pandemic. Um, and I wanted to go back to you um, because you know you see these disparities playing out every day in eviction court. Um, and the people that you represent, but you know, it hasn't really. The issue of housing stability hasn't really gotten the attention that that um, it's seeing today. So, how has the pandemic changed that, or why do you think that is? Why do I think the pandemic has put a spotlight on housing? Um, I think it's because the pandemic affects more than just um, brown and black people because I've been doing this for 25 years and I feel that housing is an extremely important issue but I think 25 years ago nobody really cared about housing because it was really only displacing um, low-income people of color and then every time we see like bubbles burst or things like the pandemic where whites and Asians are also affected it suddenly becomes an issue. Um, that people are interested in and that people are interested in funding and fixing. And my concern that we have talked about in the past is that once the pandemic is over, knock on wood, at some point it will be over, um, and it goes back to, to the housing crisis just affecting predominantly African-American and Latinx people, that it won't be a popular issue anymore and there won't be government funding anymore. Kind of thinking about how the pandemic has changed things for you or how it's changed things for, for, for folks, you know, thinking about housing. I think that the two of us, we've done a lot of reporting over the last couple of years since we've had the desk up on this idea of housing as a, a fundamental right, housing as a human right. Um, you know, I think that it's something that we hear at, you know, chants among housing advocates at, at rallies and protests. That was the first time I had heard it was at a Moms for Housing rally. And it was like, oh, this is a thing that everyone chants and knows. And I, I think that it's it's something that, that we want to, you know, people talk about striving to get to, but it's, it's obviously not realized. Um, you know, we, we see that in just how expensive it is to continue to live in the Bay Area. We see that in growing homelessness in, you know, many of our cities and, and, and further out into the suburbs. Um, you know, I want to I want to think about how, if it, if it has, or maybe it's just crystallized it for you, how the pandemic has changed that idea for you, um, Krista. You know, I, I wanted to to talk to you because I think it's a conversation that often comes up in conflict with the right to property. Um, but I wonder, for you, do you think that there should be a fundamental right to housing? Yes, it, it's a very good question, and I think actually even prior to the pandemic, mostly in the past decade. Housing insecurity and the negative impacts of housing insecurity, especially in areas like the Bay Area, has really elevated the conversation and provided more of a focus on it. Um, and that focus is one that's sort of philosophical, social, and ethical. And it is that debate of, you know, right property rights versus the right to housing. Um, and it's a difficult one because when you pit them against one another, you all you're left with is that one has to win out over the other. And in my work, I don't actually believe that. I believe that the right to housing is really critical and important. And one of the top things that we do as rental housing providers and during this pandemic has been to provide housing at all costs, meaning at no, no compensation for that. 
So I think that it's, it's a very difficult um, argument and discussion. And I think that evictions are, are not, you know, preventing evictions is not the answer and the solution. I think the three of us sit here and try to do work that backs it way up from there to say what are the real fundamental issues. Some of the things Tim talks about with, you know, reparations needing to be made to our black community members, those are the things that are going to change the course of housing insecurity. Living wages are going to change the course of housing insecurity. Further, you know, prevention of evictions or further regulations aren't always the answer. And so, yes, it becomes this argument of the right to property ownership versus the right to housing. Do you think that there is any responsibility or do you think there should be any limits on property rights to ensure that we all can have an accessible uh, home, a safe and affordable home? Well, I think, you know, I don't necessarily think that eviction controls are negative. I think, you know, our government in places like Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, and Richmond provide 13 good causes for eviction. And the top three are non-payment of rent, breach of lease, and nuisance behavior, illegal behavior. And prior to the pandemic, the majority of eviction notices and evictions in the courts are through non-payment of rent. If we look at that and focus on that, then yes, there is a way to handle that. Because at the end of the day, I'm not in the business of evictions. I'm in the business of providing housing with compensation. And so if we provide rent relief programs, not just during a pandemic, to all our community members, but to all our community members when there is not a pandemic, then I think the right to housing is becomes very important and more achievable. So the answer to your question is yes, I, I do believe a right to housing is important and there is a way to go about it. And I think I want to ask you the opposite question. <laughs> um, for you, where do uh, the tenants' right to housing, where, where does that right end and where does the, the property rights begin in order to, to ensure that there's a, a balanced uh, but also still, you know, pathway to getting a safe and affordable home for everyone? Uh, um, I'm not a very balanced person. I believe <laughs> housing is a human right, period, end of story. Um, I do think that we need more affordable housing, and I think that, if anything, this has taught us that we need more rental assistance programs, that nobody is immune. If I had a dollar for, we've probably done 2,000, over 2,000 rental assistance applications um, throughout the Alameda County, and we get so many people who are like, I, this has never happened to me, you know, I can't believe it, I've always paid rent on time, but we live in the Bay Area where, you know, a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck and are one bad incident, one funeral expense, one car break, breakdown away from facing an eviction. And I think there needs to be regular rental assistance programs that are funded. Um, now we have the infrastructure finally set up after this pandemic to help people out so that we can keep them housed and not increase the homelessness population. Yeah. Um, I think one more question and then we'll get to audience questions. But, you know, if there's been any silver lining to the pandemic, I think it's that it's brought this issue of housing stability to the fore. And, you know, it just showed how many people were, were living on that razor's edge that, that you were just talking about, Anne. Um, and it really challenged the government and individuals like yourselves to come up with solutions 
Um, you know, Tim, I know that you've been on uh, consulting with the White House's task force on evictions. I'm curious what is going to be, you know, what's being talked about nationally as far as uh, solutions there? You know, I, a lot of the conversation was just like what's going on and trying to understand what, you know, just grasping what's going to happen and hoping to understand how to get, you know, distributions out faster, what policies work, what don't, uh, what's important. And, uh, you know, that was the large part that I contributed to in, in working with several other colleagues and tracking the numbers of what was going on. And, uh, you know, we still meet uh, uh, on a weekly basis. And, um, you know, it's just right now we're just trying to track that, that seasonal, you know, uptick that we're, we're seeing now. Um, in terms of policy, you know, I think they're very concerned about what, what works. And I agree with, you know, what both of you are saying. Uh, what what concerns me, though, is like some of the things that are going uh, beneath what we see. So I believe it was in Cleveland. Uh, there's an area, you know, 90-something percent of evictions are because of non-payment of rent, right? But in Cleveland, you know, there was a large proportion of people that knew they had uh, ERA distribution availability. And 60% of those people said they had the money to pay rent. Now, why didn't they pay rent? There's something that's fundamentally, uh, they're either withholding it maybe because they were, uh, there's so many stories that I've heard that there's been mold in a, in a household and someone would, would withhold rent in protest and that would execute into an eviction for non-payment of rent. Um, there are a lot of reasons of what's going on and just from the data perspective, there's a fundamental un imbalance of protections for tenants. About 95% on average of landlords have an attorney, whereas only two to 5% of tenants do. And that varies across different spaces. And that imbalance, I think, leads to what we are seeing as the eviction crisis, as it is. And it falls on the, black, on the, on the back of, of black and indigenous and persons of color more often because of that legacy of fundamental imbalances. And so I think that, um, you know, when we've talked about at the White House about like, is it just the rental market maybe that's shifting, maybe mobility's changing, maybe there's something new. We looked at the numbers and it's the same thing that I found seven or 10 years ago, that it was, you know, when you control for, we ran regression models and when you control for rent as your main variable, we find that socioeconomics and demographics play a bigger role. Female-headed households with children predict, has a, a very high prediction rate, but just it keeps me up at night all the time that percent black continues to be the number one. In terms of policy, I'm curious about, you know, what's been talked about a lot is things like access to legal counsel, like a right to counsel, um, you know, maybe uh, some sort of diversion program. Do we know if these type of policies work? Absolutely. Yeah, they absolutely work. Uh, right to counsel in states that have enacted it have seen a very large drop. Uh, just cause is a very powerful protection. Uh, th there's a whole bevy of, of policies that we could implement right now, you know, on our, 
uh, at the Urban Displacement Project's website, we have a list of these. If one city just were to adopt most of them, then we would likely see uh, a, a large reduction. But what's really concerning, though, is there's something else going on outside of policies. I, I, I brought a slide, if I could show real quick. So um, we, we've been studying evictions for during the pandemic. You, you two have seen this slide a lot. And you know what's interesting is that what we saw was that uh, area, San Jose has the highest rate of lockouts. Again, remember, this is the third. The, this is going to be the smallest number of eviction data points that we have, but San Jose had the largest number. We just recently updated it with July data, and before July, San Francisco was only had about, I can't remember, something like 40-something lockouts. Now they're number two in the Bay Area. My first theory was that policy helps protect against evictions very, it has a very strong impact. Because if you look at Oakland, we only had like 14 evictions. Uh, but now that San Francisco popped up in second, I'm starting to rethink that a little bit, that their policies play a massive role, right? And some, San Francisco is a unique city. You cannot compare it hardly to any other city in the United States. It should have gentrified much more than it did. But because of the way that the city council, the mayor's office... Uh, are open to a lot of policies uh, and, and the aggressive community-based organizations raising this issue, you can see that you know, they're, they're advocating very strongly for these types of protections, which has definitely helped stem the tide, but there's something else going on. And I'm starting to think that when there's a city that has a very large wealth gap, such as San Francisco, you will continue to see evictions occurring. And for those kind of reasons I brought up earlier, that maybe there's something else going on. Maybe there's something, they're, they're withholding their rent, or there's aggressive landlords. I've sat on, in legislatures testifying next to a landlord who said the most racist comments I've ever heard in the state of Washington, nonetheless. And, you know, there's just, that's not all of them at all. But there are a few, and, and there's just something fundamentally systemic that's very concerning to me outside of policy, but I think the first thing we need to do is implant the policies. They definitely help, absolutely, 100%. Right to counsel, absolutely, is probably one of the top ones I would push. Um, but there has to be a fundamental change in how we view poverty that needs to happen. There has to be just a, a shift in how the United States and the economy and, and different groups operate, you know, how, how we treat the poor. How, you know, that to me is, argument for human, you know, housing as a human right to, to rebalance that scale a little bit. Mm. Uh, and I would add to that, I would agree 100% with Tim. I th think actually this chart and the um, statistics related to the July data for San Francisco to, to me shows that, you know, policy is just a, a band-aid in some ways and that we have to dig deeper. You know, as Desmond Tutu said, you've got to stop pulling people out from the river and go upstream and find out why they're falling in in the first place. And something we do know from data, eviction data, Tim will tell you, is very difficult to get our hands on. A lot of it is masked. The courts are not good at giving it to us. But 
what we do know is that, to Anne's point, you know, a tenant is just one funeral expense, one car breakdown away from not being able to pay rent. And the reality is, once you get there, it it roller, you know, it just goes on and on. It's very hard to catch up. That is my biggest concern with moving forward and coming out of the pandemic is this expectation by our government and policymakers that tenants are going to be able to repay this rent or that they should be taken to court and be forced to pay this rent back rent is not realistic. It still leaves both tenant and rental housing provider in a real jam. And so just pushing more policy, I don't think is going to continue to solve our problem. I agree that the the income and wealth gap is extreme in places like the Bay Area. And that means a larger and more difficult conversation about how we close that gap. And that cannot be borne on the backs of small property owners. Well, if I could say, I, I agree with you, but I don't know when reparations will come into play. But I think right now as a democracy, our vote and the laws, are, you know, our, our intention as a government is to protect the most vulnerable. And so without that, until we have reparations, until we have you know, this equity, this equality, which we have to fight for, we have to have policy in line. Because without the policy, we'll continue. You're exactly right. This is cyclical. Nothing is new. None of this is new. It's another recession, and it's, again, you know, crushing those that before the recession were hurt. And so it's like either, you know, let's start marching and, and get the reparations going. But in the meantime, I think the policy has to be considered. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I think it's a very important. I think the policy, yes, the policy has to be considered, and it needs to be for those who need it. I think that's another thing that's come out of the pandemic is that we have, and Anne and I both know this in working behind the scenes and and cursing over text late at night at our government, that there are people out there who aren't paying rent that could pay rent. And they are for whatever reason. And then there are people who are really hurting and need that help. And those are the people that all three of us here, I think, want to help. And so, you know, means-based, means-testing for that rent relief, which is what's being done right now with the rent relief program in the state, is important. So we need to get it to the most vulnerable community members. So I think the most important thing also is is outreach because you can have the best policy, which we need. Yep. You can have right to counsel and you can have rental assistance. But if there are people out there who don't know about it because they don't speak English or they're very, very low income and they just don't have access, they don't know about it. You can have the best policies in the world. You can have a free lawyer, but I know I thousands of thousands of stories of people who did not avail themselves of that help. They could not, you know, um, get to court, even get an attorney and um, try to get rental assistance because they didn't even know about it. So I think all of that is important, but we need to be getting out into the communities and spreading the world and word. And I think part of the problem with the pandemic is everything has moved to remote and online. And so we've lost the people who are actually out on the street, out in the neighborhoods, getting the word out. And that's the frustrating part for me because I do rental assistance applications and, um, you know, when I see them, I know this is not the population that's most in need. This is somebody who had access and could upload all their documents and get into the system. We see very few um, from folks who really, really, really need the assistance. 
Oh, that's so interesting. I remember visiting uh, with Monu some, some um, workers at Monument Impact over in um, Concord who were doing rental assistance. And it was just so interesting to me that the biggest barrier that they had was actually having people remember their passwords. Because, like, these are people who didn't have email addresses. They didn't have, like, you know, yeah. email. They had to set up a new email account because they'd never used email before or, you know, like, hadn't used their account in forever or set up, you know, once or they, they couldn't really use their phone all that well. You know, they were elderly or they were disabled or they weren't just like, you know, they, don't, they didn't speak English, you know. So it was just like all these things that, yeah, I mean, it was just really... Um, the challenges. You, you know, you, you think about something so um, basic as like a, a password, you know, um, being a real obstacle to folks. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. We want to go to audience questions. Uh, we have someone uh, here. Oh, I think there's one in the front here. Um, so she's got the mic. Great. Hi, my name is Ilaf Yusuf. I'm a housing and economic policy analyst at United Way Bay Area. Thank you so much for doing this. One of the questions I have for Krista and Anne is you mentioned that tenants and landlords who don't have access to folks like you guys might face additional barriers. Um, to the ERAP program, and we're working closely with legislators on how to improve that. So I'm curious, what aspects of those additional services that you provide do you think local governments or even the state might be able to take on to take that off of your backs and maybe make that more routine for the ERAP program throughout the state? Wow, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I feel like we definitely need more people on the ground in the community. One thing that I thought that Alameda County has, um, has done well is to try to partner with different community agencies that were not necessarily housing agencies that were just implanted in the community and had those roots. Um, it's really interesting. One thing I've noticed is that when we, I get assigned applications and I look at them, and the ones that a somebody, somebody at a community center has filled in by hand and, and uploaded for someone are the people always who need it the most, who, like, who have the lowest income. They're like 10% AMI, um, disabled seniors in the household. 
so we need those community outreach workers, like literally sitting out in a community center, filling out the paper, saying, well, can I, let me just photocopy that ID for you. Because I've told Molly stories of trying to do applications for seniors. And, you know, we get seniors who are immunocompromised. So it's not just that, you know, I can't have them come to my office. It's not safe for them to come to my office. So, you know, we're trying to do things by text and, you know, we have clients sending multiple pictures of their hand to me and it's like, no, that wasn't it. I just need your social security document, you know, and we just can't get it. And so then we're relying on snail mail. So actual physical people um, getting out there, helping people fill out these applications and gathering the documents that they need would just be amazing. I would agree. And you know, when you said, what can the government do to take it, you know, out of our hands and say, don't give it to the government would be number one. Um, I think part of this has been an abject failure of our, our larger government. I think local, you know, local agencies, Berkeley is a perfect example. I mean, back to the beginning of our conversation, when the eviction moratorium or the, um, sorry, the shelter in place came down, I called Mayor Erdogan and I said, let's put an eviction moratorium in place. But my caveat is I want rental relief from that. And actually, just to let you know, that was a $3 million program. $1 million of that was through landlord tax, a tax on larger landlords. Um, so t my preference, and I think the way it would work better, is almost treating it like get out the vote. We go out, we, we are a community that knows how through grassroots efforts to make it to people's doors and to bring them what Anne is talking about, which is that direct assistance um, and be able to put those applications through. So if anything, yes, it, I mean, really, God bless Anne. She's up late at night hand doing, you know, all of these applications. We need more Anne's. We need more me's, more people on the ground to fill out those applications and get them in. Krista, I'm curious if, um, and I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to this. Does Berkeley have a, like a rental registry? We do, actually, and we are one of the few communities that has a rental regulation requirement to submit eviction notices, so both notices and then unlawful detainers. So I've been able to look at some of that data more specifically, even though we can't get data from the court um, over the years. But yes, we have a rental registry. So is there we a way for that. the government to sort of directly communicate with landlord, with all landlords in Berkeley? Absolutely, and, absolutely. And why weren't they able to get the message out about rent relief? <laughs> uh, you know, 90% of the time the response is money, budgets. I mean, the, you know, we have to respect that cities have also hurt during this, this pandemic financially, you know, commercial retail properties have suffered. Um, a lot of us, I mean, if I don't have income on my rental income, I'm not going to pay the city a tax on that income. So for them, a lot of it has been their own resources, lack of resources, having to cut staff, and then the money to actually get out that communication. But I must say, you know, my experience, and I'm sure Ann and Tim's as well, is the government really isn't the best communicator, <laughs> nor are their systems quite up to date with ways in which people, multiple ways in which people need to be communicated mail, email, social media, you know, you have to get it on, on, on all angles and they're just not able to do that. Hmm. Any other questions? Over here. Hi, thank you. My name is Alina Yin and I'm actually from San Jose and um, I was really surprised but not surprised to see the statistics. And I wanted to ask about um, your knowledge, anybody on the panel, about the representation on planning commissions and how those zonings and um, city design works versus its correlation, if any, to gentrification and displacement. 
And we had spoken earlier about accessibility in local government. And I think a lot of cities have uh, boards and commissions that really kind of work on these policies and try to have a more collaborative approach, but it's not very accessible. And so, you know, the, the role of commissions, boards and commissions, and what it has to do with community involvement and how it uh, affects housing. I, I know sort of anecdotally a little bit that, you know, typically renter representation on planning commissions and city councils is very minimal. Um, it's, a big, it's a big gap. I don't know if, if y'all have anything to add to that. I think one of the hot topics this year and probably going into the election next year is going to be the word upzoning, which I think you're speaking to, which is the elimination of single-family home zoning um, in many communities. And Berkeley is really trying to make inroads in on that. And that's something I actually do believe in. I do believe in the opportunity to create more housing um, in California as in general, but especially in areas where supply and demand are just a reality. The less supply you have, the demand higher the prices go up and allowing to allowing community members that otherwise were not able to be within a particular community because they were zoned out through racial discrimination now providing them the opportunity to either buy or make a home in those communities is really important there is a large gap between representation within the government and the policymakers um, and the people who live in the community. And to some of the points made here, I mean, it's very unrealistic to think that somebody, the average person could do their civic duty. Because you think of some of these vulnerable community members we're talking about today that should have rent relief, there's no way they can get themselves to you know, a meeting, be in a commission. It's impossible. They're, they're living, you know, paycheck to paycheck and to think they can come and spend. I mean, I, I sit in these meetings six hours at a time, just, and us too, just to make one comment. We all three know that that's not a reality. It's a luxury the three of us have by being in the business and making this our living. So I think there's a great gap there, and I think it's very unfortunate. But I think there's a lot of opportunity in this uh, discussion of upzoning and the elimination of single-family home zoning. I will say that there are several cities um, with rent boards that have renter participation. So, for example, in Berkeley or... It's 100%, 100% tenant on the um, rent board in Berkeley. There's no landlord representation. So um, that's one area of government where I can think of where there's uh, some more <laughs> renter uh, per, you know, representation. <laughs> If I could add to that yeah. too, if that's okay. Um, I, I think that uh, your point is, is very powerful about you know, the time that it takes. And so how do we fix that and replace that? And I think that's you know, something that I've been noticing that I want to study further is the effect and the frequency of community-based organizations that can represent tenants on the ground that make their time and effort to do that. Um, you know, I've just been insanely impressed with San Francisco's uh, organization, uh, just atmosphere. And it's, uh, there, there's a monthly meeting with uh, the mayor's office, and there's over 100 CBOs talking just about evictions once a month. And it's like, that's great. You know, that, that kind of model should be, you know, passed on to other cities and almost required and funded because of that exact reason that it takes time to do that. Um, so to some degree, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like having your own represent, representative you know, to, to talk on your behalf. And in addition to that, too, it brings up another issue about design 
of markets and, and the economy. And one thing that we talk a lot about is the three Ps. Whenever a development goes in or a plan or a policy goes into place, we should really consider three things while we're going into it. Protection of tenants, preservation of existing affordable housing, and production of more affordable housing. And to do that, if, if that kind of approach is not baked into the beginning of any kind of development or as we're moving forward, then we will see displacement, hands down. So it's, it, you know, that, that type of, of framing and encouraging support from representation. I'm really glad you asked that question because I think that's a fundamental issue of like, how do we bring that representation in more? And there are great examples around, especially the Bay Area. I think the Bay is actually, you know, there are some really good national examples that the Bay can provide. So, um, yeah. Another question? Oh, here. <laughs> oh, the second row, yeah. I'm not even sure how to start with this, but, but I think I have to start by saying the language that we use in having this conversation is a problem. Mm. Um, so, for instance, when you're talking about the applications, I think that any application for um, housing should not be more complicated than the people who are supposed to fill that application out. So what is our obsession with, um, like, data on a level that you've got somebody who's compromised? And, you know, I, think I live in East Oakland right off of East 14th Street, uh, International Boulevard. And the more people are displaced, the more mentally displaced they are, too. So we're... And the something that is undergirding all of this is just racism, mm -hmm. today's racism. Mm -hmm. And also, it wasn't post-slavery. It's from the beginning of the, you know, so we have to, I think, have a more honest conversation. That 70% of the homeless people are black yep. is unforgivable. Yep. And I hear people talking about uh, Bay Pot. BIPOC, there's some other longer, what is all of that about? No one should be home, and I, I, I'm a filmmaker and did a film recently, and one guy said, you know, there's this motto, housing should be a human right. He says, yeah, everybody agrees with that. The problem is, who do people think are human? Thank you for that comment. Um, and thank you for having this conversation today. My name is Ixchel. Uh, I'm a housing advocate here in San Francisco. I wanted to bring to the table a conversation, again, about this housing is a human right. And we're talking about who are the most vulnerable tenants or who are mo the most vulnerable people. Um, and there hasn't been a lot of conversation about people who have subsidized housing and what federal subsidies add to this conversation, how they continue to complicate this conversation, um, the addition of who is a deserving tenant or not. Um, so I'm just curious. If, I, I also don't have a very, I think, formulated question about this, but I'm, I'm missing this aspect of if we're talking about vulnerability, we need to be adding the conversation of people who hold subsidies when these subsidies are continued to be underfunded, when public housing is continued to be taken away from people. Um, 
so that's, I guess, a commentary. I, I'm glad that you brought that up because this was actually something that we noticed uh, when we looked at the data of who was being uh, locked out. And we saw that, for instance, in San Francisco, about half of the lockouts were uh, from subsidized housing, mm -hmm. um, so uh, supportive um, affordable housing sites. Um, but I think part of that was because we were looking at, you know, really just the pandemic. And we are actually going back and looking at um, pre-pandemic lockouts also to get a better understanding of sort of what the baseline was um, and how that changed. Um, but it really showed that even though that these sites were intended to have, you know, supportive services available to the residents, that they really weren't getting the type of, type of help that they needed to stay stably housed and therefore were being evicted as a result. Um, but it was, I'm glad that you brought that up and it's definitely something that we're gonna be looking at in, in greater depth. I, I will say that in a lot of states, subsidized housing, like you know, uh, public housing authorities are within the top 10 evictors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a very common issue. And I was actually on a board meeting one time with uh, a particular city's public housing authority and one of the executive members says, yeah, it's because of non-payment of rent. Mm -hmm. That blew my mind. I was like, this is the population you serve, right? Why, why is it non-payment of rent? I would, I would expect it was like someone got caught on camera bringing somebody over that shouldn't, didn't sign in in the front door, you know, in the front office kind of situation, but in reality, there's something, and that, that goes back to what I was saying much earlier about there's something like, it's not just non-payment of rent, there's something going on, and I think we need to disentangle that a little bit more. And we can't just do that with the data, you know, that's, that's right. you know, it's an important dynamic to really, really consider. Well, what was interesting, too, is that this, you know, the data that we were looking at was just during the pandemic, so non-payment of rent was off the table. Right. And then when we started to kind of dig into some of the cases, we realized that, oh, it was someone with... Um, who was bringing in, you know, things that he found from outside and, and had trouble keeping his room clean. And right. he had someone, you know, help, helping him manage, you know, cleaning the, you know, keeping the room clean. But, that, you know, like, you know, but then he violated the rules on another occasion. So they were evicting him because, you know, so it was like, it's a very... Um, they're all very uh, sort of complicated, complex situations. Um, on that side, but I think in the non-pandemic times is, is gonna be interesting to add that data in because mm. it does seem like it's, um, while the data that we were looking at showed this was a particularly acute for people during the pandemic, um, it's clear that this is an issue during you know normal times also. It concerns me too that you say it like that too because that, that individual may need some extra support. So they got evicted because there wasn't that support built into the system already. Right. So it wasn't exactly. even their fault. Right. We right. see that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it begs the question of where do people go? Yeah. You know, oh. it's right. like this is sort of the housing that we've created to, to help the most vulnerable have an affordable place and probably the last affordable place in the Bay Area. And so if the root of the problem for a lot of these evictions is failure to pay rent, not enough affordable housing, if they're getting evicted from that, um, I would imagine that a lot of people probably end up homeless next. Right. And I just remember the attorney saying, like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, here's someone who just went through, was, you know, had been homeless previously, went through the whole system to get housed, 
now is in housing, and now we're going to send them out to be homeless again, you know? Um, well, and I think on the flip side of that, it's true, and even pre-pandemic, we, we all know, we, the three of us have been in this business for a while, that there are always people on the edge. And, you know, if you're at the lowest cost housing possible, you're in affordable housing, whether subsidized or through a community member who provides that housing, you are just one step away potentially from being on the streets. And that has always been an issue. And that is due to systemic racism and other parts of society and problems within society that are endemic to this that really have to be addressed. We have to treat this from a holistic perspective. When we try to just treat it from one little piece at a time, yes, we it, it's a stopgap measure momentarily, but ultimately it keeps the three of us really employed because we are constantly here battling these particular issues. And until we can coalesce around that, I think that's where Anne and I have really tried to work together in this past year and a half is to coalesce together to say, we've got to make a difference and we have to make a change here. Because yeah, people are just one step away from being homeless on on the street. And listen, that's the last thing I want to do, which is why I'm not in the business of eviction. I'm in the business of providing housing, and I need to be compensated to a level where I can continue to afford to provide that housing. And that's what we're looking to our government to do during this pandemic. Um, One last question, if anyone has one. I had a question about the data that you guys presented. Our team has been really struggling to get some eviction data, and I think somebody on the panel pointed out it's kind of a black box. So it sounds like the data is just evictions, period, not just non-payment. And I was curious, what we've been noticing with our partners on the ground is there's an uptick in eviction cases for reasons outside of non-payment. So it's almost like landlords have found a workaround um, to find other reasons to evict tenants for non-payment, but not for non-payment on the books. I'm curious, what policies would you recommend we put in place in addition to strengthening anti-harassment policies to prevent that from happening, not just now during COVID, but even after COVID? I would say right to counsel, universal right to counsel, because it's so hard for tenants to go to court and to battle um, a pretext eviction is what we call them when they say, oh, I'm actually evicting you because, you know, you have an extra person living there and you're like, I've had this person for years. Or you have a pet and you're like, I've had a dog for years, but it's really because the rent is too low or maybe they're lagging a little behind in rent. Those cases are really hard to peel the layers off. And I think the laws are only as good as if you have someone to enforce them for you. And so that's why I think like the policy of universal right to counsel would be really important because housing is a human right. So if you're about to lose it, you should have someone in court representing you. I, you know, I, I honestly think that, you know, even in, in civil, you know, criminal cases, you know, a public defender is provided for you in an eviction case, a public defender should be provided to you because it is as important and detrimental to have that representation. A lot of people talk about navigators. Like, we, we've had many conversations, well, in, in the back, you know, seat, we've talked a lot about, like, well, how can we just avoid, like, the cost of legal representation, Right. It's, it's very expensive. But the problem is if you don't just take it straight to legal representation, A, no offense to folks that are navigators, they don't have the legal knowledge and they don't have a lot of the expertise on how to handle that case. And so at this stage right now, where we're at right now, we really need that full-fledged 
you know, legal representation across the board. And, it, you know, if you have an eviction, you should be handed a, you know, information as well as the number of your attorney. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the right to counsel really comes in on those not, on cases that are not related to non-payment of rent, you know, because non-payment of rent is, you know, pretty straightforward. <laughs> you know, it's like, give someone rent relief. Um, it's those other cases that tend to be a lot more complex. They also lead to really good resolutions between landlords and tenants, too. Right? Yeah, I would add to, you know, there's a debate on right to counsel, and I'm not sure I agree with my panelists on that, but I do believe in sort of a right to mediation. Because, listen, litigation on either side is very expensive. It's either costly to the community to provide that for a tenant if they're not represented, or it's very costly to the owner um, to do that. And my personal experience, I started this business with an eviction. My neighbor, before I even had rental housing, an elderly uh, Latinx woman who had a tenant who, unfortunately, she bought a duplex, she had a tenant. The tenant paid $800 cash every month. They didn't have a lease agreement. Tenant was from the church, the local church. They were church members together. She died in the unit and her adult daughter squatted and didn't pay rent for a year. And I learned how to file an eviction in court. And I went to court on behalf of the owner. And ultimately, the tenant got to live there for free for a year. And I thought, this is crazy. This can't be real. And it would have been much better for us all to sit down and try to work something out instead of going to the court system. But I fully agree with Tim that in order to do that, you do have to have people that know rent regulations laws and all of that so that you can come to a fair and reasonable conclusion for both parties. That's critical. I mean, I don't think that most tenants walking into housing court even know that that's an option, you know, that they could make a deal, that there's an option besides just having to pay the money they don't have or, or you know, walking out the door and getting evicted. That's why we have a very high default judgment rate, too. Mm -hmm. You know, in some states, 30 to 40 percent of people just don't show up. Right. And that goes back to everything we've talked about, not no information, no, you know, under, yeah, access. You even uh, get to court. Yeah. Yeah, we all fought sort of the, uh, in Alameda County, the, the eviction court was moved to Hayward. And so there was difficulty in just tenants getting to court to actually be present in court mm -hmm. and to get, to get things settled out. So there are a lot of barriers to coming to resolution on that. And I'm not sure providing counsel is, is an absolute end to, to figuring that out. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of mediation just because I feel like the way it's run, it's typically run by the court institution. And I feel like the, the clients that I serve really tend to get rolled in mediation unless they have counsel. So that's why I feel like having counsel is such an important piece. Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a mediator at court who was <laughs> he's also an attorney, but he represents both landlords and um, tenants. Um, and he was telling me that he just hates doing mediation when one side isn't represented because they'll get presented a bad deal and they'll accept it and then they won't know that it's a bad deal and he can't advise them as a mediator. So, um, you know, he just kind of has to like be like, oh, you really shouldn't have done that, but okay, are you sure? <laughs> um, and he, you know, he can't really do anything. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for coming out and for spending your Saturday. I think what it was afternoon. That's what we all decided. Maybe it's <laughs> evening now. Um, but thank you so much for coming out. And I, um, I just wanted to remind everybody that we do have a sound booth outside of the PRX Podcast Garage. So if you haven't already and you want to share a story about 
housing, your own experience, um, or just what home means to you, we'll have a producer on site to record your story. Um, so feel free to stop by. And thank you for coming tonight. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks to our panelists. Have a great night, everybody. Great thank night. You. Thank you so much. Sold Out Season 2 is coming in February. So subscribe now if you haven't already. And if you need to catch up, make sure to listen to Season 1. It's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Basically, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we want to hear from you. Tell us your housing stories. Email us or send us a voice memo to housing at kqed.org. Or leave us a voicemail at 415-553-3308 you might hear yourself on a future episode of the podcast. Sold Out is a production of KQED Public Media. Erica Kelly is our editor. Kiana Mogadam is our senior producer. Brendan Willard is our sound engineer. And Rob Spate wrote our theme song. A big thanks to Eric Don and PRX Garage for setting up our story booth. And to KQED's live events crew, producer Lance Gardner, director Danny Skarka, and audio engineer Stan Burns. And a special thanks to Yoan Martinez, James Wu, and Steve Dung. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.